You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Welcome to the Revision Path Podcast. My name is Maurice Cherry. And before we get into this week's interview, just want to talk about our sponsors really quickly, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. MailChimp, as you know, is the premier email service provider choice for entrepreneurs and small businesses. Join more than 7 million people who use MailChimp to design and send 500 million emails every day. Sign up for a free account at MailChimp.com. Need a new domain for your next project? Check out Hover. Each domain comes with free private domain registration, unlimited domain forwarding, and world-class customer support. Grab yourself a domain today and use the promo code GRADUATION and save 10% off your purchase. Creative Market sells fonts, themes, graphics, photos, and a whole lot more starting at only $2. They give away a selection of free goods every Monday, today is Monday, and they have great bundle promotions every month. They actually just wrapped up their May bundle last week. Um, have you purchased something from Creative Market and used it in a project? Then you should submit your work to Made with Creative Market, which is a new showcase of designers' works that they have from around the world that are made using Creative Market products. You can check that out at madewithcreativemarket.com. We got a new review on iTunes. I'm very excited to read this. This comes from Marshall Shorts. Marshall, uh, who you may recall, we interviewed a few weeks ago, uh, founder of Creative Control Fest in Columbus, Ohio. And his reviews title Our Voice in Design, and it goes as follows. I must commend Maurice and Revision Path for doing this work. The design and related industries often present a homogenous voice in leadership. Revision Path has chosen to take the road less traveled of inclusion in a still very non-inclusive market. This work is not easy and I'm glad to support and know that we don't stand alone in the creative space. Marshall, thank you so much for leaving that review. I really do appreciate it. For those of you that are listening who haven't rated and reviewed Revision Path on iTunes, please do that. It really means a lot. It helps more people find out about the show. Um, and you can do it for free. All you have to do if you have iTunes, just search for Revision Path, leave a rating and a review. It means a lot. Now, you may have seen the tweets from earlier this week about Tugboat Yards. Uh, Tugboat Yards is the platform that we use for our supporters for donations. We use it for the tip jar, the $5 fist bump, as well as for episode sponsorship. Well, Tugboat Yards has been bought out by Facebook. Uh, they'll be going out of business next month, so we're going to be moving our operations for that over to Patreon. Um, I'll have more news about that as well as the URL pretty soon. My goal is to have everything set up by June 1st, so make sure you're on our email list so you can get first notice about it. All right, let's get on with this week's interview. I talked with Frederick Towns, who's the co-founder and CTO of Playster and the founding CTO of Mashable. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. I'm Frederick Towns. I'm a serial tactical founder. Right now, I'm focused on a project called Playster, where we are enabling the real estate professionals in the United States to market better on the internet. How's Playster been going so far? Really well. Tremendous growth in, in an industry that really hasn't uh, really found its kind of technological foothold. In other words, there's no Google or Apple in the real estate space, kind of like there is for other categories of, of software products. Like everyone knows Salesforce for CRM. So it's going really well. 
tremendous growth, phenomenal partnerships. And a couple of weeks ago, we closed another $15 million in, in funding. So very exciting. Congratulations. Thank you. So as someone that's a, a serial tactical founder, I'm assuming that you're pretty well versed when it comes to raising funds, presenting to VCs and things like that. Does it get easier the more that you do it? It's a funny thing. So generally speaking, skills can be refined and honed and, and things of that nature. It's the circumstance uh, that creates the nuance and the adversity when you've done things a lot and have developed experience. So I had dinner with one of our earliest investors earlier this week, and he's working on a new venture with his uh, co-founder. And it was just really interesting to hear the things that folks never talk about in the process of fundraising uh, because they just figure it out and get it done. And the figuring out thing gets easier with skills, but the, it's still challenging. So, yeah, quite a bit of it, it, it gets easier. You know, how do you identify areas of improvement? You know, how do you seize opportunities? How do you message to certain types of audiences? You know, all of this stuff sounds generic, but it's true. It's relevant to the fundraising process. And then all you have to do all that just to take all the work that goes into building a business and making sure that the information is accessible to to the VC. And there's lots of different VCs, right? They're Not each one is a snowflake. I mean, they have the same intent, but they size up deals and assess opportunities pretty uniquely, even though they use mostly the same criteria. What are some of those things that people should just kind of be aware about? I know you mentioned, you know, just certain particular skills, you know, building a deck, talking with people and things. But you also said that the circumstance is kind of that special nuance that, that can make it work with a VC or not. Yeah, I think it's like anything else. Like if you're running a, an agency and you're trying to find a good client to partner with, it's, it's the same thing with a financial partnership in the sense that, you know, since they all are here to grow business and create grow businesses and create business value and ultimately your return on investment, they use the same criteria, generally speaking, at a high level to measure that. The thing that one needs to do is kind of interview them to make okay. sure that you understand what are the qualities that they look for in an opportunity or, or, or a deal. And there's some scene in one of the Steve Jobs documentaries where he says to, I think it's, it's Mike Markula, this like former, I think, IBM guy. He says something like, what do I need to do? to no maybe it's a later scene but anyway in the, somewhere in the in the jobs movie i think he's, he says what do i need to do for you to to invest and i don't know that everyone needs to take the tack that steve jobs did but that's an interview he's like hey i like what you guys have to offer what do i need to do to get a deal done and they'll usually tell you and if they don't give you a straight answer i mean it's, it's that's also an answer it means like it's probably not going to work out so I think that's probably one of the keys. And then you have to use your skills and preparation to rise to the occasion or to present the information in a way that they're looking for. Because they, again, are all looking for the similar, similar set of criteria. Now, I know there are a lot of accelerators and boot camps and things like that that are really trying to get people more into that, I think, startup way of thinking, particularly as it relates to pitching to VCs and funding. What do you think about that? I think mentorship and programs oriented around it are a brilliant thing. I also found that in my educational experience, like emerging courses where, you know, you'd spend the whole day like working on Spanish or some or math or something was interesting and was helpful. It's similar with the camaraderie and the relationships and just like the, you know, being emerged in startup culture. And the 
one thing that I think some folks do need to think about is that startup culture is not terribly novel in the sense that startups are just small businesses that are super ambitious, right? Our economy runs on small businesses. Most economies do service-based economies anyway. And so a startup is just a, just has lots of ambition and hopes and dreams and not in a pie-in-the-sky way, but in a I-think-I-can-figure-this-out kind of way. It's a beautiful thing. And so the accelerators are all about folks who feel that way. They've done it before, they want to do it again, or they are you know, supportive of, the, of that kind of movement and bringing that all into one place and, I guess, continuing to raise the bar as they often do on folks who qualify for the different uh, programs just means more jobs created, lots of constructive disruption of lots of old industries and ultimately better ways of life. Certainly when technology is doing its best that's, uh, or serving its purpose, that's what we, what we realize. So they're awesome. I don't know of all of them, but the ones that I'm aware of are uh, very constructive and positive. When did you start your first business? Uh, I think I started my first company right after undergrad. So that was 2003-ish. Okay. Yeah. What was that business? Was that W3 Markup? No, that was W3 Edge. So I would do quite a bit of consults and help other people build their products and businesses. And I didn't really know that I was that that, that was the activity that I was doing. I mean, I understood that folks had needs and they had some ambitions and they needed someone with who knew the web really well and technology really well to, to help them move forward. So... I went from focusing on web hosting because, you know, the monthly recurring revenue is obviously an interesting business model to building websites because there was like larger transactional volume to marketing websites because that was performance based, but it was also monthly recurring revenue ultimately to making just making other businesses. So W3 Markup became a line of business that I put together with skills that I had developed, you know, and helping other people. And now the W3 Edge kind of come out of that? No, the reverse is true. So W3 Markup was like just a, a line of business, meaning, you know, I said, hey, I'm going to productize, if you will, some work that we've been doing and make it super easy for customers and clients to understand what they're going to get. And uh, it was pretty much a niche play at that time where you could just outsource the heavy lift of taking artwork and getting web page template out of it. Uh-huh. And... I think one of the key things that I did with that line of business is it wasn't all high volume oriented. It was, you know, larger account oriented. So there'd be high profitability per transaction, if you will. And so that business scaled pretty well. I mean, we went from like six people to 53 people in 11 months. So it was a lot of wow. a lot of growth. It was not fun, though. So I, I ended up <laughs> selling that line of business because I suppose it would be a very large organization now but I didn't you know I didn't want to continue in that vein it's uh so when you're helping people make you know their ideas into websites I mean there's a lot of opportunity for things to go wrong and so if you've got hundreds and hundreds of customers it's like stressful yeah so comes overwhelming yeah what are some things that you've learned since then well you know culture in an organization is the most important thing and it's like this kind of like you know grains of sand in your hand at times to figure out what it needs to be and and hold on to the things that are constructive but at the end of the day companies are just a whole bunch of folks who are marching in the same direction so to speak and and you know your culture is how you do that march how you work together 
And so when you're growing a business, your culture changes every single time you add a new player to the team. And so creating uh, an environment where you can grow and growing pains are understood and maybe not always exciting because you just can't be. Not everything can be exciting. It's just that's how life goes. But where people know what they've signed up for and they're bought into the journey. So that's the biggest thing. It's like uh, that's I'm talking about it like it's art, but there's some science there as well. I think that's probably the most important thing for folks who want to make a larger organization because they want to have a larger impact or because they just want a more profitable business. So one of, I think, your kind of earliest claims to fame is that you're the founding CTO of Mashable, which is a site that I'm pretty sure everyone listening to this episode has heard of in some shape or form. How did you get connected with Pete Cashmore, with Mashable, and how were those kind of early days getting started? That was a really long time ago. So back then, I don't know if it's 2006 or 2007, you know, doing consults and like pitching, marketing, you know, this is when social media is like a legit thing and people like it's, they know what you mean when you say it to them. Me and I think Neil Patel, who's like, you know, Crazy Egg and Kiss Metrics and ACS, I think all these companies that people have probably heard of. Uh, he and I were both pitching Pete on helping him with his social strategy. And so Pete was over in Europe at the time, and you know I think there was only a few writers. It was just obviously very early on. Millions of page views, super successful. And when we look back and through time, it always seems like things are overnight, but you know he had just put in a tremendous amount of work with the team at the time. And so Neil and I were like, hey, Pete, let's like, let's figure out how we can help you grow, basically. And so what ended up happening is there were some, some opportunities for improvement on the web hosting side. And I think the site was with Media Temple at the time. Like of the different, two things happened. Of the different content management systems that people were using, I kind of personally said, okay, WordPress is one that I'm going to start leaning into. And then thing two is, as I helped Pete with some of the technical challenges and just keeping the site up and making sure we didn't miss any traffic, basically, it got to the point where we just started working more closely together. And he's like, hey, you're my CTO. And so in a startup, you know, you obviously wear lots of different hats, but that was the biggest one. And now out of Mashable and working with Pete and working with Neil, that's when you sort of got the idea to create W3 Total Cash? I had really originally intended W3 Total Cash to be a retirement project. By that, I mean something that I could work on in a like less, I don't know, high stakes kind of way, right? It's uh, the open source community, which I love. It's the WordPress community, which has created so much value for so many businesses online, right? Because they can create their own destinations and build their own brands with that technology solution. And so it was uh, the culmination of a lot of things that I learned and uh, an opportunity that I saw that was latent. So there's clearly other products in, available for free in that community that help people scale their websites. But the way that folks, at least in the past, had collaborated around projects for WordPress and the pace at which problems were solved just like left a, a latent opportunity. So like if you think about it way back then, there was no WordPress specific web hosting solutions. There were people who were aware of it and would call it out, but they didn't like craft their entire business around helping those right. people who used WordPress scale. So the intent was really to take things that I had learned and give back. 
right? So I got involved in the community. I was speaking at lots of word camps. I was just doing lots of learning and trying to do lots of giving. And so I put lots of effort into thinking through a product that was ultimately a, a framework for scaling WordPress or basically any PHP application, but it focused on the nuances of WordPress specifically, scaling that application irrespective of need. So it wasn't like, hey, if you want to build Mashable, get this thing. It was more like from a computer science and engineering perspective, I'm going to create a, a tool set for you to address the blockers that keep you from creating really great consumer experiences with your content, right? Make your site faster. There's no silver bullet for that. So the, the thing I thought to make was a framework to provide flexibility and, you know, make the 10,000 decisions that people didn't want to, probably didn't want to go through the learning that I did to find the answers to. And W3 Total Cash is still a very popular plugin. I actually teach a course on WordPress and I, I recommend that my students use it. So it's still something that is used by a ton of people. WordPress now has been out for what, like well over a decade now. Right. Where does it go from here? Where do you think it goes from here? So the trend, you know, I try to explain this to folks on, on my teams now. I mean, there's paid, owned, and earned media. And all of those things are good things. So each one has a yin and a yang, and that's okay. And so the point is, is that in terms of own media, like you having a domain name and some kind of way that you publish and then your content's on the web and, you know, Google and, and other outlets are bringing, helping folks discover your content. That's beautiful. And earned is like saying like, hey, people are engaging with and having conversations around my content, right? Or the content at my destination. And then paid is saying, hey, I'm going to interrupt people or opportunistically appear in places I wouldn't organically otherwise appear in order to ideally drive engagement back to a property that I own on the web. And WordPress has allowed the owned and earned components of those two out of those three components to be super straightforward for folks. And there's other ways that you can go ahead and get your own destination online. But WordPress has managed through to do through a number of tactics, uh, not the least of which is like backwards compatibility and having a, an inventory of plugins or extensions or whatever you want to call them, make it really easy for people to put a solution together for lots of needs. And because there's no one size fits all, you need a framework. And so WordPress is that for publishing. So they're going to continue to grow. And as it grows, the thing that you're naturally going to see is folks are going to, like technology companies, are going to start to focus on vertical niches and helping to curate what a solution looks like for someone who has a flower shop or a small media company or a barbershop or whatever. So that those folks that run those businesses don't have to spend the time keeping up with the trends and learning the nuances. And by saying no to a lot of things like a solution provider saying, hey, I only care about barbershop stuff. I'm only going to make great experiences for those people looking for consumers looking for barbershops on behalf of a barbershop owner. That means that the quality of the experience and the laser focus will, will really take shape and WordPress will be powering that using all the exact same kinds of uh, mechanisms that it has. It's got, you know, we don't need to list the features, but the features won't change the methods through which solutions are crafted will, I think, become more personalized or customized. So walk me through what a typical day like is for you. You're, you're working with Playster. You're, you're probably talking to 
clients and talking to your staff. What's an average day like for Frederick Towns? This year, I mean, we've been really focused on growth. So just speaking to this year rather than, you know, late last year, which is more focusing on product and operationalizing a lot of the processes that we developed to be ready to grow and, and close our Series B. I think right now it's really about meeting a lot of people and creating a lot of relationships so we can grow our teams. So, you know, so far today I've been on the phone since 8 a.m. Just meeting people, talking about the business so they understand what we're up to, and then learning about what they're looking for in their next opportunity. It's also been a lot of strengthening relationships with, with organizations that we partner with. So working alongside of folks who, you know, like earlier today, I was on the phone with the guy who's been running a phenomenal business for 10 years and just trading some war stories and creating that, that friendship as we try to go to water on a new opportunity together. So doing business development. And then, you know, the product stuff is just always there. We've got a, just an incredible team. You know, we're just celebrating Series B as a team last night as well. And just being a mentor and helping to make sure that folks have what they need, you know, on the engineering side is something I spend a lot of time with. You know, we've got a lot of idea paint in the office and I'll, I'll be walking. I don't really have a desk per se, so I'll be walking through the office and, you know, one of the guys will say, hey, Fred, what about this? And everywhere there's idea paint, we just start writing on the walls and we'll talk through a problem and people will be kind of buzzing around and we'll get problems sorted out. And get back to the keyboard or go out for lunch together and things like that. So other than that, it's it's also a lot of time with the executive team, you know, working with my co-founder and trying to make sure that we're thinking far enough ahead and being tactical enough to keep the business growing. That's an ongoing activity as well. You talked about mentorship. You've talked about that before. You talked about it just now. Who have been some of the people that have really helped you out as you went along? Who've been your mentors? I'm sure someone has a more elegant way to put it, but there's like the passive mentorship or like the drip mentorship, so to speak, where, you know, we're all, whether or not we're deliberately doing it, whether it's direct or or indirect or intentional or unintentional, we're all looking at other folks that we admire and trying to understand what it is that they're doing that's working for them. And some of that just takes shape in reading some of like the, the most popular folks in given spaces, like in my early days, it was like looking at Eric Meyer and Jeffrey Zeldman and Ethan Marcote and like Dan Cedarholm and all those guys who, you know, really had carved out a lot of the great online destinations for web design and development and so on. And then as your career moves forward, I mean, some of those relationships become, they're not just digital or drip kind of relationships. They become like, you know, actual people that you interface with. So one of my earliest jobs. So I guess I started off working it. So I was able to get, it was right in the the downturn in 2001 when I finished at VU and I was, I developed a relationship with someone who was actually a VP at State Street at the time. And he kind of just would, was very generous with his time. And he, he was one of the first folks that helped me understand like how much stuff you really need to be able to keep in your head to be effective as an executive, but just, you know, as someone who's going to be successful. And so I worked at State Street, and that's when I would, like, go home and start working on what became W3 Edge. So that was one of the – Stephen Dill was one of the first guys that spent a lot of time with me. 
probably after that, there was a guy named Andrew Rudnick who was, you know, a client, but also decided to spend time with me. And I'd, you know, I'd go out to his office and work on things. And he was one of the sharpest guys I ever met. I don't know. There's been a, just a myriad of them. And I've learned different things from each of them. And the thing that, I guess, helps you kind of figure out if you've got a great relationship with the mentor is when... It's not like you like uh, there's ever a falling out or a drifting apart. It's like these people are busy, and part of how you like get their attention is you try to help create value for them. Even if you're just sharing something that you learned, it creates an opportunity for another dialogue. And the thing that I, you know, your question made me realize is that over the years, I see my mentors reach back out to me and say, "Hey, let's hang out," which is a great sign. It's not like they wouldn't say that ever if I reached out or something, but. There's that camaraderie of that, you know, as they kind of share in the accomplishments that inexorably occur as time unfolds in someone's career. So that's a really exciting thing. So I encourage people to go and develop those mentorship relationships. And they don't have to be, you know, you don't have to sign an agreement or something to cultivate them. It's just there's some people who want to give back or just be extremely helpful. And I just call them mentors. You know, they don't necessarily sign up for it but I try to make it a rewarding relationship for both sides of the table. And then it's just, it's an everlasting relationship. So quite a few over the years. Where does your ambition come from? I mean, it sounds like you've always been extremely driven and um, extremely dedicated and focused. I think a lot of people look like that. I think I'm just a regular guy and I just, I go fast. I try to go fast whenever I can. And so if you go fast, you tend to get a lot of things done, and you get a lot of things done, and it culminates in accomplishments or milestones, and that's it. I mean, so when I sat down in Florence, Italy with my wife, when we moved to Florence in, like, uh, 2008, because she was in the States with me for five years, and so I said, where do you want to live? She said, Florence. So we went to Florence. We're, like, traveling around Tuscany for, like, the first 18 months, different places every quarter, and so we were in this, like, old, what used to be a monastery, and it was like, you know, it was wonderful. You go pick figs and like all kinds of berries and stuff for a meal in the day or whatever. And I'm sitting there and only working at night because it's so hot in the day. I mean, there's no AC in this place. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, there really should be this thing, you know, what ultimately became W3 Total Cash. And I went there and I did all the project planning and laid out all the things that I thought needed to be there, many of which still haven't been built. I mean, I wrote like hundreds and hundreds of tickets in the plan. And... I just sat there because it was interesting. Like I'll never forget one of the nights I wrote like the the first FAQ for the product. It was like I don't know 200 kilobytes. So in a Word document that's like I don't know 80 <laughs> pages or something. But it was like in a text file. And I'll, I'll never forget. My wife gets up in the morning and she's like, "You haven't moved," and like which was not good feedback. Like you're supposed to like rest and like do normal things. And she was giving me a hard time because. I hadn't moved. I wrote this whole FAQ, which is still in the product, and it has all kinds of really interesting things in it, like how the hosting landscape would change, and all those things happened. So I don't know. I think it's just like anything else. There's lots of people who get into things, and they're just like, oh, wow, look at this whole universe. And what you're really just looking at is like lots of curiosity and, and kind of intensity. It's driven. You know, I know people that are more driven than me, and they're just scary. So maybe it looks like drive, but it's lots of curiosity. Okay. What was it like living in Florence? It's like Boston meets Italy. 
So lots of art schools, lots of Americans, okay. lots of English. Like the locals can see you coming and they just won't let you speak Italian to them. They'll just start speaking English. Oh, so, wow. and then it's like also the men's cap and, uh, fashion capital where Milan is the women's. So that was cool. You know, I got some of my favorite shoes there and met lots of expats. And it was, it was just really easy to navigate that city. And then, you know, we have a hybrid. So we were able to, you know, you can't just drive any car into the city. So if you have like an electric vehicle or certain types of vehicles, you can go anywhere. So I'll never forget we're hanging out with a local and we're like, yeah, drop us off because he's driving. He's like, I can't go to that part of town. And I'm like, what do you mean? Because there's like five or six zones or something. And we're like, why can't you go there? Mm-hmm. He's like, well, I don't have the pass. And my wife, she studied law, international law. And so when we first got to Italy and shipped our car, she went and got the special pass that was for all zones. And he was like, this guy, our friend was like, you can't get a pass for all the zones. And my wife was like, I did. (laughs) And so that was a funny moment when, you know, one of the local Florentine people was adamant that something was impossible. And here, you know, my wife and I had figured that kind of thing out. But it was a very exciting time. Wonderful weather. We lived right across the street for a period of time from like this school and an arboretum. So just even though we're in the city, because I just couldn't not be in the city, even though my wife was fine out of the city, it smelled like we were outside the city when you open the windows for most of the year. So mm-hmm. really cool. You know, Europe is a great place. Hopefully I'll get to uh, spend time in, in Asia and South America and see what's over there. But we really enjoyed Italy. Were you involved in the like local tech scene there? Or did they have a local tech scene? There's almost always a local tech scene. I was not really involved with it. There's a, a pretty popular like local blo- uh, um, Italian blogger who is in Rome. It's like not that far from me. It's like two or three hours on one of the trains to get down there. But I wasn't able to really create a relationship with, with that guy. But he was one of the more standout folks. It's different because in a lot of those European cultures, even though there's an awful lot of tourism, there's a lot of pride in the, in the history of each one of those areas. So not just Tuscany, but like Florence in particular, or any one of those, those cities have like a really distinct culture, almost different accents for the most part, not just like in America with north, south, east, west, like accent differences, like per region accents. So there's a lot going on that's like a slightly counterintuitive in terms of how the uh, the local cultures work. So tech was a thing. I didn't really get into it there because when you're in Europe it, in tech, it's more of a international tech scene okay. or a European tech scene, I should say. And how is it different from, well, I mean, so you're saying that it's, it's kind of more of a, a European, like a, a national type of thing, but how is it different in Boston? I mean, it's America. I mean, the vast majority of this stuff was built here, even though none of us were here originally, right? So everybody came here and started doing things like technology. So with all the schools, I mean, MIT, BU, BC, you know, I mean, there's just like, there's the highest density of schools, I believe, is here in Boston. So the meetups, the startups, the incubators, the accelerators, like all that stuff, it's just a tremendous scene. And then Boston is like, in, at least in terms of like area, is not a huge amount of space. I mean, it's not New York, obviously. So there's just an awful lot of activity going on in all different areas of technology. And obviously, since, you know, Everyone is speaking English and, you know, it makes it easy for 
for more people to transplant, which again is driven by you know the schools and how the population swells, like when when classes are in session. So it's a different animal, mostly I think driven by the all the schools. What advice would you give to someone out there that wants to kind of follow in your footsteps with what you've done? Well, I think I'm just following other people's footsteps. I mean, one of the first things I'd say is like there's a number of different patterns uh, that one can follow to achieve things, and success is definitely a, a subjective thing. I mean, there's some echelons, you know, the, the Michael Jordans and the Donald Trumps of things where it's just like, well, that person is clearly successful. I don't mean that. I mean, success in terms of personal satisfaction is a subjective thing. So folks really need to find a comparable person or people that they admire and try to dissect the journey that those folks went through to get the things that they want. That would, generally speaking, be my recommendation. And then other than that, the closest thing to a shortcut in life is a mentor. So hopefully most people, when they're young, their mentors, you know, when they're in childhood, their mentors are their parents. But then as you move through life, you need to, you know, you need to develop strong relationships with people with specific uh, subject matter expertise. Now, it sounds like you've always been really involved with programming from college onward. If you never discovered programming, what do you think you'd be doing? I'd probably be building stuff. I probably would have gone through, like, you know, building some kind of real estate or something like that, whether it be commercial or residential. I would have done that. I probably would have been one of those guys who, like, I don't think there was, like, a single company that would have been building all the different uh, buildings in Las Vegas, but I'd be one of those guys. I'd be a real estate guy, probably. What's the last thing that you built that was just for fun? Well, most of the things I build are fun. <laughs> so that's a hard question. So maybe you mean something that I built that, you know, I just, I put it together and then I kind of threw it away? Well, yeah, I mean, something that's not necessarily for, say, I almost don't want to say for public consumption, but I feel like that's the best way to put it. Something that may have been just for a task that you needed that wasn't necessarily for clients or for business or something like that. Oh, it's been quite a while. I mean, some of the things that I build for fun are when people ask me for help with something. So they'll be like, hey, how do I accomplish this thing? And it might be a technical thing. It might be an operational thing. It might be a strategic thing. And or, you know, so I might give them a process. I might show them how to, like, make some software do a thing. So it's really it's usually like one offs when people ask me for things that I, I usually take the time to do something that is totally divorced from something that I'm trying to accomplish in a business. So I don't have a specific one on okay. my head. You got any big plans this summer? Well, I'm going to actually take a, a little bit of a vacation. That'll be good. Other than that, you know, this is just a, a key stage in Placer's life right now. So I'll be focused on trying to make sure that Q3 and Q4 are phenomenal. It's counterintuitive because a lot of people have a, a place to stay and a place to work in this country, and hopefully more will as the economy improves. And once people do, they generally don't think about those things unless they're looking for a vacation, in which case they, you know, they're borrowing someone's domicile, right? So real estate is something that people take for granted. And the thing that's counterintuitive, if some, unless someone lets you know, is that there is just terrific amounts of investment going into that particular industry and everybody who's ever looked for a place to stay or visit or something knows that there's just awful awful experiences for for consumers trying to find something that they want 
And generally speaking, especially in residential, but also true in other types of pro- with other types of property, is that the agents are the subject matter experts that actually make the process happen. And searching online is like for things is only good for discovery. It's not really good for most people for trying to get into a deal and be like, hey, I like this property and I'm going to make a purchase. For vacation, you know, Airbnb, those guys are phenomenal. And part of why they're successful is the sticker price is, is a lot lower for a couple of nights or whatever. You don't need a mortgage for that, right? So for these big ticket items, the, the shopping experiences or the buying experiences got a lot of opportunity for improvement. So I'm really focused on making Playster uh, the vehicle that brings that Im- improvement to the consumer. That's what I'm really focused on. That's all I can really think about right now. Well, I guess that kind of segues into my next question. I was going to ask, where do you kind of see yourself in the next, I don't know, let's say it's 2020. What's Frederick Towns up to? What are you doing? Wow. I know it sounds so far away when you say it that way. Like it's <laughs> it's only five years away, but it's, yeah, it's I su- the future. I su- it is. I suppose it's because <laughs> that's just like a kind of catchy year, right, 2020. Yeah. But I hopefully I'm a dad at that point. I think that would be super rewarding. Other than that, you know, I'd like to see some, I don't know, proof points that all the different folks that, that we've helped through our business or that we work with are seeing are seeing benefits and, and value from the work that we've done. And we'll be able to, to point to that forever, you know, the way that one can point to their diplomas or any other accomplishment. I think that would probably be the big thing is uh, the second thing anyway. And then, you know, I've been married like nine years now. I hope that doesn't change. So those are like the, the three big things that, that I'd want to be looking for. It's just to see evidence that the, the juice has been worth the squeeze and to, you know, move on to being a dad and, and doing that with my bride. Gotcha. Well, I know you're a busy man. I just want to kind of wrap things up. Where can people find out more about you and about your work online? I guess the one destination that links off to the rest of them is frederictowns.com. It's probably the easiest one to hold on to. Uh, but I'm on all the channels all over the place. All right. Sounds good. Frederick Towns, again, thank you so much for talking with me. I think it was really great. Not just learning about, you know, kind of how you got started, but you really kind of made this this big focus on relationships and how important that has been, not just to your success, but how important it is overall for us to really make new things and kind of put our dent into the world, so to speak. So, Thank you so much. Again, I really do appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it. And that's it for this week. Big thanks to Frederick Towns and thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Frederick and Playster and more of his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. Thanks as always to our sponsors, MailChimp, Hover, and Creative Market. When it comes down to email marketing, MailChimp makes it extremely simple. They have great reporting and autoresponder features, and they have it where you can send 12,000 emails to 2,000 subscribers for free. No contract and no credit card required. Check them out at MailChimp.com. Hover is the best way to buy and manage domain names, and they give you exactly what you need to get the job done. Get yourself a new domain or transfer your current domains to Hover and save 10% off your first purchase by using the promo code GRADUATION at checkout. And lastly, there's Creative Market. A marketplace that sells beautiful, ready-to-use design content from thousands of independent creators from around the globe. Head over to creativemarket.com, pick up those six free goods that are available for free every Monday, and if you see something that you like, use our discount code REVISIONPATH and save 20% off your purchase. 
This episode was edited by RJ Basilio and produced by me, Maurice Cherry. Our intro is by Music Man Dre with intro audio by Yellow Speaker. The outro audio, This Is My Tape For You, is courtesy of Jimmy Square. Make sure you subscribe to us on iTunes. Leave a rating and a review. It really helps us get new listeners. I'll read your review right here on the show, just like I did with Marshall's review at the top of the show. Uh, I really love to get those. So please, if you like the show, if you've been listening, leave a review, subscribe. It really means a lot. Revision Path is a 318 media project. If you like the work we're doing with the podcast and the website, then visit revisionpath.com forward slash donate and let us know. Leave a tip in our tip jar, sponsor an upcoming episode, or join at the $5 fist bump level to show your ongoing support. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next time.